For our series of the ADC's competition talk with leading experts, we have Miguel Lamano, Executive Vice President at Compass Lexicon. Miguel Lamano is one of the foremost European experts in competition economics. Miguel joined the European Commission in late 2000. In 2003, he became a member of the newly created Chief Economist team. He was appointed Deputy Chief Economist in early 2009. And then from October 2011 to May 2012, he was acting chief economist at the UK Competition Commission. Over the past 18 years, he has been closely involved in dozens of in-depth uh, merger and antitrust investigations. Miguel, welcome to the ADC. It's a pleasure to have you here and have the opportunity to have this podcast, or better said, podcast with you. Pleasure is all mine. Thanks for inviting me. Miguel, given your large experience on competition policy, and in particular on abusive dominance, we would like very much to hear your views on the recent developments in the Intel case. In May 2009, the European Commission adopted a decision finding that Intel abused its dominant position on the CPU market and imposing a fine of a billion euros. Uh, the Intel case has generated a heated debate on how the European Commission and the Court of Justice of the European Union investigate and deal with abusive dominance uh, through loyalty rebates. Can you give us a brief overview of what you think are the competing views on the Intel case? Uh, so thanks, Anna, for, for inviting me. Indeed, um, the Intel ruling of uh, September of last year has um, you know, sent a bit of a shockwave through the community of practitioners in Article 102. And in my view, the most prominent uh, message from the ECJ's judgment is effectively that the case law needs a clarification. This is how the ECJ put it, a clarification of um, how to assess um, loyalty rebates. Um, these, what the court is trying to tell us, in my opinion, is that um, the two extreme views that had existed over the past decade or so with respect to um, the correct enforcement approach vis-a-vis -vis loyalty rebates, both of them are really not right. So one is the one so-called form-based approach, where all you have to do is look at the form of the practice. In this case, uh, conditional rebates are um, imposing, uh, you know, a restriction on the, the on the on the buyer to uh, or inducing the buyer to buy nearly all or all of its requirements from the supplier in exchange for a discount or a rebate. And when the rebate takes that form, especially if it's retroactive then almost per se, automatically, that implies that there's going to be harm to consumers or there's going to be a foreclosure effect or however you want to define um, the, the, the negative impact, i.e. the restriction of competition. And that is therefore um, enough to, to establish that there's an infringement of competition on the 102. The alternative view, which has been uh, primarily advanced by, by economists uh, who have a uh, a view of enforcement which is uh, more directed towards separating um, theories of harm that, uh, well, theories of, of uh, abuse that lead to harm to consumers versus other theories that really don't have any negative impact on consumers, um, is that uh, one, in this circumstances, one has to look at the actual effects. And, um, and in the, part of the reason for that is, uh, according to, to economists, uh, including myself for a long time, is that some practices, including loyalty rebates, could also lead to efficiencies. And so 
prohibiting those practices may ultimately harm consumers. That should not be, the, uh, of course, the objective of uh, one or two enforcement. So you need to balance the two, and, and you cannot balance the two if you have a form-based approach where just by looking at the form of the practice, you declare there's been an infringement. And I think what the court has done um, in trying to provide a clarification of you know, where to go here is given us um, a, a way to um, determine the what needs to be proven, and by whom, and at what time. Um, namely, it tells the authority that it's legitimate to look at a practice that's, that's just conditional rebates, loyalty rebates, um, which is what the, uh, or in particular, not fidelity rebates, but the, what the general court calls um, exclusivity rebates, the new category of exclusivity rebates that they created. And, tells us that those exclusivity rebates can be assessed as um, presumed to be having a negative impact on competition, restriction of competition, but that presumption can be rebutted. And the parties are then called upon to make that rebuttal, and the ECJ gives us a number of ways in which this can be done. Um, and if that rebuttal is uh, successful or persuasive, then really the authorities have to go in and consider all the circumstances in which those rebates are provided and possibly do an assessment of efficiencies and a balancing of the harm against the uh, potential beneficial effects. And, and so it has given us, the ECJ has given us in one swoop um, uh, a way to go, a path out of this um, really, really tedious, frankly, and confusing debate that we've been having for 10 years. Miguel, DCJ's Intel judgment notes that the Commission should assess whether the conduct is in fact capable of restricting competition, and this has placed the spotlight to the meaning of capability. What is capability, and how is the threshold of capability met? What is your opinion on this current debate? Right, so that, that's, a, that's a fundamental question, right? And let me take a step back um, to explain at least how some economists, at least myself included, actually understand the, the Intel judgment. So I, I, in a way, there's a number of things that, that seem to come out from that judgment. The first one, on which probably we can all agree, the first one is that the ECJ does not really make any distinction between object and effect, effect infringements. So this is a distinction that is in 101, and the ECJ has not yet despite the debate around these issues, imported it into, into 102. Um, the ECJ also does not make a distinction between capable and unlikely. It doesn't explicitly use the opportunity of a judgment to tell us whether capability means likelihood or certain degree of a likelihood. It doesn't get into that at all. Um, the, the other thing the ECJ doesn't do uh, is it doesn't really endorse an effects-based approach for conditional rebates. So it doesn't tell the commission or an authority, you have to prove anti-competitive effects. Right? It doesn't do that at all. Um, what they do is, and, and the key is, of course, in, in paragraphs 137 and 138 of the judgment, they, they do, 137, bring in line um, exclusivity rebates, which had been carved out in the general court's judgment, uh, from loyalty-inducing rebates um, as being almost per se abusive, as mentioned earlier, they bring that those type of rebates back into the fold and they say, look, all loyalty-inducing rebates, 
exclusivity, rebates or not, they're all the same. Uh, however, um, they are, you know, following the case practice and the case law of the, you know, of the general court and the ECJ, they are, um, are presumed to be abusive. That's paragraph 137 of the judgment. However, what's really important is that unlike in the general court's uh, own judgment that gets annulled here, they, the ECJ says, but you can rebut this presumption. You, you, you know, there's different ways in which um, the defendants can rebut the presumption of illegality of a loyalty inducing rebate. And that the guidance comes here in paragraph 138, where the ECJ says that there's a need to clarify this point. Right? The case of Masi further clarified, and especially in a situation where the defendant submits during the administrative procedure, uh, I'm almost quoting verbatim from, from the general from the ECJ's judgment, on the base of supporting evidence that the conduct was not capable of restricting competition and in particular of producing the alleged foreclosure effects. So as an economist, what do I read from that? What I read is that the ECJ is telling us there's two ways in which you can rebut this illegality presumption. One is you can show there's no capability to foreclose. So how do you discharge that burden? Well, in my opinion, what that means is that you need to apply what in the past was referred to as an all circumstances test. The commission needs to look at all circumstances uh, surrounding the, the, the case and identify a cogent and sound theory of harm that describes the mechanism through which this loyalty inducing rebates could in fact have the capability to foreclose, could lead to the foreclosure of, of a competitor. And, and then once you build that theory of harm, and that's just a theory. You don't need to prove actual effects of any kind. You're just putting forward a theory. You look at the conduct and say, well, observing this conduct and given the circumstances, given the, the coverage of the conduct, given the uh, ability of, uh, of buyers to find alternatives, given what competitors can do, uh, given their market position, given you know historical constraints, including regulatory constraints, given all these facts, all the circumstances, um, here's a theory of harm that shows the mechanism through which by... Um, tying in, you know, inducing loyalty from a particular customer through a, through a retroactive or conditional rebate, uh, competitors will not be able to compete. They may not reach enough scale. They will not benefit network effects, and they will not, you know, be able to exert a constraint whatsoever. Maybe even leave the market, get marginalized, and that allows then um, this this company to to benefit from from the from the foreclosure strategy. So, to me, the capability to foreclose is not related to an issue of how likely it is that there was foreclosure or that there would have been foreclosure in the future. It's just a way for the court to tell the authority, tell me a story that makes sense and is you know, sound and, and well supported with, with economics. And of course, that that story fits the facts. That's what I understand. But the court also says in that same paragraph, uh, 138, that also the defendant can show that the conduct did not have the alleged effects, right? Um, and what that, the way I understand it is that you, 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 you can rebut this presumption of illegality by, as a defendant, coming to the commission or the authority and saying, look, um, yes, we understand what your theory of harm is, but when we run it here um, and we look at what impact it has had or it would have had you know, relative to a counterfactual, there is actually either no competitors to be foreclosed because we are the most efficient company in the market. None of our competitors are just as efficient. So, you know, there's no one 
we don't need to engage in anti-competitive behavior um, because we are already winning the market by, by being better than anyone else. So there are no actual as efficient competitors out there. Uh, and um, and if we do uh, we run uh, a so-called as efficient competitor test, where we look at you know what would be the um, foregone rebates or lost rebates that the customers will will sacrifice if they switch to a competitor of ours, um, and then we look at the price at which uh, the competitor will be will be able to uh, to, to come into the market uh, and the cost that, that it would have. And for that, we would assume our own cost because, of course, we don't have information about our competitor's cost. So we look at the margin. We can observe that the margin they would get uh, could offset uh, or allow them to compensate the client, the customers from switching to them and losing the rebates. Therefore, there is no foreclosure. So here's my AC analysis. Uh, and um, yes, your theory of harm is logical. Yes, it fits the facts of the case. Therefore, yes, there's capability to foreclose, but there is no actual anti-competitive foreclosure. And so yeah, that's that's my defense. And of course, the court is telling the the authorities, uh, the commission, uh, implicitly, you have to take these defenses into account, in particular an AC analysis, uh, if the parties put it forward. You don't have to put advance it yourself. You can rely on the presumption of illegality. But if the parties put it forward, you have to um, you have to look into it, all right? And uh, in that respect, I think, as far as I'm concerned, at least, um, all is clear. So the ECJ has really clarified how to proceed in these cases. And I would therefore expect that in the future, the dialogue between the authorities and the defendants will become, um, you know, uh, more intense because the Defendants now know that it's just not enough for the commission to come forward and say, well, this is a type of rebate that looks very much like uh, the rebates in Hoffman La Roche uh, 30 years ago. Uh, and, you know, because they're very similar, um, you know, in reality, this is, a, this is an object uh, case and there is an abuse here. No, I think now there will be um, an, an, there an obligation on the commission to show a theory of harm and possibly the defendant will try to disprove there was any actual anti-competitive foreclosure, which is in a way, and with this I'll conclude here, is in a way of vindicating um, the, uh, or resuscitating, if you will, <laughs> the guidance paper, because that's exactly the approach that was proposed in the guidance paper back uh, when it was adopted in 2010, I believe. So the presumption stands still. Uh, however, a lot of more economic analysis goes into it. So for, in your view... This is a clear mark or confirmation of a more effects-based approach and a further departure away from a form-based approach. In short, you, did I did I get your words right? Right. Um, so, yes, um, but it, it we will we will see how it plays out in practice. So I think the court is um, taking on the baton from post Denmark um, and and Carbon Cares. And the court is saying, look, we do not want to have an enforcement system that protects less efficient competitors, right? Uh, or that it can be manipulated for that purpose. We want to ensure that the authority, uh, the competition authorities, um, protect consumers and that when they intervene, it's often on the basis of a complaint, they take very seriously the possibility that um, they're being uh, used for the purpose of protecting uh, less efficient competitors. Um, now, I think, however, the, the, the commission typically exercises with, with, um, with great um, judgment, I think, its, its enforcement priorities and its, its discretion in terms of what cases to pursue. 
and, and has therefore in the past, uh, at least in my experience, focused precisely on those cases where the evidence that there's been, um, there's been harm is, is there, uh, or likely to be there, um, certainly relative to counterfactuals. Um, so it may think maybe that it, you know things don't change very much you know, from one day to the next because the commission will continue to focus on those priority cases where there are problems and those are the difficult ones. Those are the ones where the defendants, you know, don't necessarily have good arguments. You know, coming forward with you know here's my my AAC test that proves there's no there's no problem here. Um, but it's also true that you know. Um, the commission can get carried away, especially if it feels it doesn't have the obligation to check, you know, whether theory of harm exists and whether there's a good prospect for the um, for the practice to be harmful. And and so I think what the court is doing is just um, telling the, the commission what you were trying to achieve with the guidance paper in terms of aligning and setting up informed priorities is the right way to go. So we give you the support to do that. Um, and uh, and we will reduce the amount of the number of type one errors. So enforcement will become more precise, mm -hmm. will become more um, you know better in many ways. Um, the deterrence effect, of course, will be even higher. That's also a good thing. But I'm not sure in practice it doesn't necessarily means that uh, we're going to have these big fights uh, among economists from the commission and the other side because it just depends on what cases are brought. If they're clear cut, they're clear cut, and no amount of AC defense analysis defense is going to work, right? So Miguel, briefly, uh, now that the case is back at the general court, the Intel uh, case, uh, what do you see as upcoming uh, developments? Um, well, I, I personally believe, but I, I'm biased, obviously, um, since I was at the commission at the time this case was, uh, this decision was adopted, that this was a it was a solid decision. It was a sound decision. Um, a significant amount of economic analysis was supporting, uh, including, of course, an, an AC analysis, was supporting the uh, conclusions uh, and uh, regarding the infringement in this case. Uh, it was a surprise to me, frankly, that the general court said that this none of that analysis was necessary. Because it was uh, already there, basically. Because it was already there, it exactly. It would have been fairly easy for the general court to say, well, thank you very much. You know, you've met all your legal... Uh, legal standards uh, to prove infringement, and on top of that, um, you've corroborated this with with good solid economic analysis. Um, uh, they didn't do this. That's fine. The ECJ is now asking the General Court to review this again. My uh, prediction is that they will then now look into more detail into the economic analysis that was undertaken on this matter, and hopefully conclude uh, that uh, it was uh, sufficient, uh, meeting the required standards, and supportive of the final conclusion. Now, I have to say that the one thing that um, I think should happen and hasn't happened yet, despite all of this, is that the Commission pays more attention to efficiencies. Um, there are multiple, in, even in, of course, in, in the case of um, loyalty rebates, there are multiple efficiency justifications for offering rebates to, to consumers, even those that, that um, create a commitment. Um, they, you, 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 through, through this rebate structures, 
you can ensure that you align incentives. You can ensure that you, for example, to make investments on that are relationship specific. You can ensure that you avoid free riding behavior. Um, you would, similar to what happened in Cotton Care, is you create the circumstances for new relationships to emerge that otherwise wouldn't exist, new products to be developed that otherwise wouldn't be developed, distributors to take actions that would maximize consumer wealth and expand the market that otherwise wouldn't happen. I mean, we see this in the area of 101 a lot. We should see it in 102 as well. Uh, these efficiencies until now have not been taken all that seriously by anybody. I mean, not by the commission, but also not by defendants because, but you know, that's understandable. The commission's not going to pay attention. Why should they? The one other good thing that comes from the ACJ's judgment is that they make it very clear, again, in line with the guidance paper, that an objective justification doesn't just mean that you can, you have to do this because you're forced by regulation or by, you know, health uh, rules. Um, an objectification also takes into consideration, as the guidance paper did, possibility of pro-competitive uh, justifications and, in particular, efficiencies. And, and that is, uh, uh, of course, in the Intel judgment itself, it didn't play a big role because Intel didn't make an efficiency defense argument, at least not um, in a forceful way. And I hope that in the future, um, this will be the route, you know, building on the ECJ's judgment that a lot of defendants will take when, for example, um, if you run an AC analysis, it turns out that that's not enough to disprove that you've uh, foreclosed as efficient competitors. Maybe you have foreclosed as efficient competitors. The question is that you did it, but there was a, an efficiency that came out of it. And I hope that's where, you know, that's the next challenge for the next 10 years, that this becomes a reality. A big challenge, however. Yes. Thank you, Miguel. It was great having this competition talk with you. Thank you very much, Anna. Thanks for inviting me. It's a pleasure. Yeah.